Earthbed Muscle is a grassroots supplement company created by some of the best strength coaches in the United States to provide their athletes with wholesome supplements. Earthbed Muscle has changed the supplement industry with their minimal ingredient approach to sports nutrition. Dane's platform is also brought to you by the Acceleration Diet. The Acceleration Diet is a customized weight loss program catered to each individual, their needs, and their schedule. Accelerate your metabolism today with the Acceleration Diet. Finally, Dane's platform is also brought to you by Holistic Encapsulations. Holistic Encapsulations provides organic hemp extract with an incredible 27 to 1 CBD ratio. Loaded with CBDs, hemp extract has been shown to decrease anxiety, have a positive impact on cancer, improve sleep, improve brain function, and decrease inflammation. Head over to HolisticEncapsulations.com today and get on the path to holistic recovery. Alright, so we're here in the gym doing a podcast and I'm here with a guy named Hunter Shears. Am I, am I pronouncing that correct? Yeah. So Hunter is a shot putter, a little bit of discus. Yeah, discus shot put, hammer weight. At Winthrop. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, Winthrop University. It's in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Rock Hill. Yep. Um, so he's going to ask me some questions. We'll see how this turns out. Hopefully it, it provides a decent amount of information for everybody out there. We're in the gym. I'm watching Anne-Marie slay, slay some weights. Emery, what did you get at USA's? Fifth? Yes. Should have been fourth. Actually, should have been third. <coughs> All right, Hunter, so what do you what do you want to know about? Hopefully, I have some answers for you. Hopefully, I'm not a complete yeah. dope. Yeah, so I got, a, I got a pretty big list from, you know, compiled from the day, uh, about seven questions. The first two are pretty long. So my first question I really want to know is what drove you to create garage strength? Um... Man, a lot, a lot drove me. Uh, I would say, so like from the beginning, I always, even when I was in high school, I trained, uh, I trained other athletes. Actually, when I won the States my senior year, my track coach, her son wanted to get ready for football. He was going to be a freshman that year in high school when I was going to be a freshman in college. And that was like the first time I had ever, like she was paying me to, to train to train Kyle, who actually is the same exact guy. He's a real estate agent that I used to buy this property. <clears throat> so he's technically the first person I ever trained. Um, and I had one of, one of his like female teammates was a shot putter who saw me in the newspaper and her dad was also paying me that summer as well to train her in the shot. Um, so that was sort of like my first exposure. My first exposure and the first time I realized that I was like, wow, I'm getting paid to do something I'd like to do. Um, throughout college then, it, you know, people would ask to train with me and just see about like what my, what, what our workouts were like at Penn State. And then the when I went to when I went to Canada, when I decided I was going to move to Canada and train with Dr. B, that was the day I basically decided that I was going to use my experience training under Dr. B as a way to to like promote and become garage strength. Because I, I I was going to go get a like PhD uh, or a master's, but I wanted to get a PhD. Uh, with my original degree, religious studies, 
but you're sort of like become a professor in religious studies or own a gym and train athletes. And at the time, like for my own athletic ability and for where I was, what I wanted to do and, and having the opportunity to go train with Dr. B, that's where I sort of decided like, okay, running a gym is my long-term goal and training with Dr. B will help me get to that point. So awesome. once my parents were like, all right, we're not helping you out anymore financially, I was like, okay, I'm going to commit to this full time. Gotcha. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, another one along this, along the lines of creation, uh, you'd mentioned in, in your live feed, people have asked you, you know, what caused you to drive or what drove you to make EarthFed Muscle? And you, you've always touched on it. You never gave in the full on story. You said if we wanted it, we, you know, we could get it. So I figured now would be a good, you know, good time to ask it. What, so what is the full story about EFM's creation? Okay. Okay, I'll try and do this. I wasn't sure how long it would be, but I It's not too long. So we were, myself, DJ, and Chris, Chris is the other owner of Earthbed Muscle. Um, we were all working at Garage Strength, my gym, and we were buying a, a whey protein product called One World Whey. So One World Whey was claiming to be organic, grass-fed, all this stuff. That's what they were claiming to be. Over a span of about a year and a half, I had spent a whole bunch of money with them. And I was selling it in the gym, so I was making money back. Um, but I'd, they ended up, their product got labbed. Okay? So their whey protein got labbed. And it was actually 25 grams of maltodextrin and only 4 grams of protein. And it was supposed to be 25 grams of protein and like 5 grams of carbs. So that sort of threw up a red flag for me obviously, like that I couldn't really trust anybody in the supplement industry. And Chris and I had been spending a long time discussing, you know, starting an e-commerce venture that we could, basically talking about supplements, uh, that we could use to sort of fund my goals and dreams with Garage Strength. And uh, so what Chris ended up doing is he's like, dude, I think you should buy raw materials off of Amazon and we just mix it up. And it basically came down to he convinced me because he sat there and he's like, look, like you, you got all these athletes getting drug tested. They, and, and my athletes had just started to be tested by USADA. <coughs> and he's like, you've got all these athletes getting drug tested. Like you need to make sure that you're getting them good quality products, why don't we start a supplement company uh, so that nobody's getting popped? So that's what we ended up doing is that we sat there and we're like, okay, let's buy all of our raw materials. And we, we bought, uh, you know, like 80 kilos away, a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of uh, stevia flavor, like stevia. And then we bought stevia that was flavored with like cherry and lime and all this like crazy stuff. We had orange, cherry, uh, lime, chocolate, strawberry, vanilla. We had so many flavors that we were just taste testing. And then, yeah, crazy. like we were making it in the back in the office. I think you had included in one of your videos you showed. Uh, I'm gonna show the like box. Concrete mixer almost. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. You guys are doing your testing. Yeah. yeah. Well, so 
we were using, and, and this is in the very beginning when we were like, we didn't even form a company yet. We were just doing it to see if we could do it. And then we were mixing up pre-workouts and I was buying all the, the raws online and we would sit there and I would come up with these concoctions and give them the kids to try and see if they were worth it. Um, so that, that took us about a year of just like seeing if we could come up with something. And after about a year of doing that, that's when we formed it legally and decided that we needed to find a, a manufacturer and like get our recipes to the manufacturer and see if they could do what we did. Because our product tasted good and we had all of my high school kids here were taking it. So we knew the taste was good. Uh, we just didn't know if somebody else could replicate our taste, yeah. which they couldn't. They, they couldn't do it. They ended up taking us. <clears throat> we had to go down to this place and spend an entire day there until we finally were comfortable committing to a flavor because they had been sending us samples back and forth for six weeks and they couldn't figure it out. So, see Dakota, that's how it started. That's how it, <clears throat> that's like the full-blown story of where everything was, you know, sort of born. It really was born out of a company who was a scam artist company that was, <clears throat> you know, marketing themselves as organic, grass-fed, and all that stuff. And that's the problem is that, and, and I'm a grass-fed, organic guy, but, like, the problem with organic and grass-fed, especially in supplements, is that you can market something grass-fed and you don't have to prove anything. Mm -hmm. like yeah. Nobody knows. Now, depending on the source of where you're getting it, if you're, if you're getting it from New Zealand, it's probably grass-fed, but the other thing is, is that they could cut that with 30% American whey protein and it's not grass-fed, but because it's 70% New Zealand-based, they can still call it grass-fed. So that's like the whole part of that side of the supplement industry that people just don't, they don't comprehend. So you're so, just trying to get past the corruption. Yeah, yeah, basically. That's what, and, and, and ultimately the thing was, is like, I sat there as a coach and I was like, what if, what if one of my guys gets popped? What if Haley gets popped? What if somebody gets popped? And that, that could ruin me as a coach. Mm -hmm. So it's like, that's, and now that's what I think is the most important part for me is it's also just, you know, now I, I'm, we're working on a product right now because one of my wrestlers, Nick Gwizdowski, who just got third at Worlds, he wants something in between matches that he's going to help recover. Because he'll wrestle a match, and 25 minutes later, he's got to wrestle another match. And these are the best guys in the world. And so Nick's like, yo, is there anything I could do to take that could help me in between matches? Or that like a CrossFitter could take, or a football player could take him in a game. And I think what that the original goal, and it still is, is that we could supply high-quality products to our athletes. But the second goal now is like, I can create products specifically for my athletes, you know, like Nick needs an intro workout type product, but a little bit different than an intro workout that's not going to make him bloated or anything that he can use. So that's like the next, those are, that's like the cool part now is it's also trying to figure out the performance side as well as the integrity side. Right. So, you know, you see everything they do in training and then after that you've seen, oh, they have an issue here, they have an issue here. Yeah. Let's fill in those gaps where we know. Yeah. And you know exactly what's going in there. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, we can move on to the next one. So this one has been racking my brain for a while. I'm sure there's other athletes in the same position. Um, so how would you approach an athlete who feels their college coach isn't sufficient and then they might feel trapped inside the system? And that they can't really have any movement as far as wanting to have their own personal goal, personal goals, personal training, and, and just such things like that. Oh, that's good. 
Anne Marie. Great lift. Um, yeah, I'm dealing with that with somebody right now. Part of me thinks that there's like two sides that you could go. Yo, taller finish. Part of me thinks that you could do like, okay, when you're on breaks and you have the summer break, try and figure out a training system that you like, that you support, and that you want to be a part of, um, and do that on your breaks. Part of me, that's also a little sneaky, and I, I think... I think at the end of the day, the, the only way you're going to change a coach is if you can sit down and approach them like an adult. And at least if you approach them like an adult. So that's where I would say what I would do is, is – now, I wouldn't have done this in college because I was too big of a pussy. But when, <laughs> like now, looking back, I would have sat down with my college coach and I would have sat down with my head coach and I would have sat down with scientific-based evidence and somebody like with somebody who has a clue. And said, look, this is what we're doing. This is what science says. This is what this guy's doing. This is successful. And what we're doing isn't. And I think that we should try to at least educate ourselves to learn from this system and how we can alter, you know, and, and bring it back to your coach. Like, hey, how can we alter your system to improve it so it's similar to this guy's system? And if you can communicate that to them and, and do it diplomatically and, and provide evidence, and especially with your, with your head coach, that's the most important part. And then what I would say is if they're, if they're not going to budge and they don't want to listen to it and they think you're just an entitled college kid, well, then you've got to sit there and say, all right, maybe I do do it the sneaky way. Maybe I do when, you know, when, when I'm on breaks, I do my own thing. When I'm, when I'm home for summer, I do my own thing. And see how it happens. Because that's the other thing. Like, like I have a guy right now who went home for summer, gets in really good shape. He's dropping bombs in training. And as soon as he goes back to school, he doesn't throw for six weeks. And now he's messaging me like, dude, I lost everything from the summer. So, like, let's take it from a shot-putting perspective. Let's say that same kid goes home. He does a summer meet at the end of the summer. And he PRs by half a meter. He could take that and come back to the coach and be like, yo, coach, this is what I did all summer. And I just PR'd by half a meter. And at least then you have a little bit of evidence. But it's not really – at the end of the day, it's tough. Like, mm -hmm. dude, it's hard because a lot of them <coughs> – a lot of college coaches will just be like, no, go somewhere else. I'm giving you money. Like, try and find money somewhere yeah, else. That's, that's, that's the issue. So that's like the hard part. That, it, yeah, so like you're saying, not trying to backdoor the coach. But you know, at the end of the day, any relationship, the best way you, to deal with anything is by communicating. And if you can talk to your coach as much as possible and communicate your problems and communicate what you believe and, and listen to them as well. Don't just, don't just give them your side. Listen, listen to their side as well. That's going to be – ultimately, that's going to be the best way to handle it. But the problem becomes it still might not be the end result that you want. Mm -hmm. And then, then you could also just sit there and say, you know, maybe you do want to transfer. Or if, if you can't find money somewhere else that you're getting where you're at, like – then you just gotta deal with it, you know. Yeah. That's 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 a, that's not, my college coach. I liked I liked him. He's a really good dude, and there are certain things I think we could have done better. But at the end of the day, like when I was done college, I knew I wanted to keep throwing because I knew I should have been throwing further, mm -hmm. which is why I did keep throwing. Like so.
don't know. That's a tough. That's a tough situation. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the reality that some people face. So, I mean, obviously, me for for a chance, not trying to put it out there, but definitely have struggles as far as communication. But I like the idea of actually going up to them, sitting down with them professionally, not not blaming their system, just saying, "I see improvements that we can make on." Uh, right, yeah, yeah, I definitely I appreciate that one. Um, so moving on, another obviously this is different from the training aspect, but. So, do you have any advice for someone who aspires to open their own, you know, their own private gym? So, wants to open up something other than a big box gym. How many hours a week do they want to work? <laughs> uh, that's going to be a full-time job, yeah. entrepreneurship. You know, as far as, uh, you know, just the end. I, I think the biggest thing that you need to do. I, I mean, it could be you, Hunter, but anybody who wants to do that is you've got to sit down and say, what's your end goal? Like, you've got to have a vision before you start. Like, is your vision going to be? I want to I want to just have a gym and all I want is one gym and I just want to train athletes and I want to train fitness people I want to train people to get in better shape and I just want one place and that's it or you know I want to have a chain of like how Victory used to, Victory Sports used to be around here Parisi where it's a chain of like sports performance centers and they and the guy who started did make decent money or the, or Power Trains another guy he had like seven or eight gyms like you got to sit there and say, what is your vision? What's your vision financially? What's your vision for the gym and, and for that venture? And if you can set up that long-term vision of where you want it to be, then you, you know, you, you build from the bottom and you build towards that vision. And that's the biggest thing is that you've got to and take anything that you're thinking and make it way worse than you think. You know, take the money that you think. Oh, I only need eighty thousand bucks to start. No, you're gonna need like one hundred fifty. Like I'm, that's just a number thrown out. Mm -hmm. um, I'm gonna work fifty, sixty hours a week. No, you're gonna work like eighty or ninety. Like uh, I can travel. You know, whenever. Like no, you can't because like like there's there's so many little things like that that you've just gotta approach from like the negative side. Yeah. If that's and and if you can approach it from the negative side, of wow, that you know. You gotta pay for your own health care. You don't have any paid vacations. You don't have any paid days off. You don't have any, you know, especially when you're developing the business, you don't have time to leave because if your vision is here, you've gotta put in that work to reap the reward of being getting to the vision. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Arnold always said, like, you gotta put in the work to get the reward, and it's fucking true. Like, you can't just think, like, like my vision, I can't just sit here and be like, oh, well, I can just keep doing what I'm doing right now and I'll get there. No, like I got to keep improving what I'm doing. So, um, you know, still stand taller and shrug more at the top. So I, I think as far as starting, you've just got to, you've got to recognize that one, you have to pay bills. Um... So you've got to make money. You got to train people that you might not want to train. You might have to train older people. You know, you're gonna to have to. I know you will. Um, the other thing is, is like, I would go through the financial side unconventionally as much as possible. Um, <clears throat> dude, my parents bankrolled me. Now they bankrolled me as far as they let me use a. a their garage, literally, like that's how they bankrolled me. I, I never, they never gave me money mm -hmm. for my business, but they let me use their garage and they let me improve the garage at their house 
so that I could start my business and get my feet under me. And when that was happening, you know, I lived at home. I didn't move out till I was 27. Dude, that's like, that's pathetic. Yeah, it's crazy nowadays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, but I, that, that was a sacrifice that, or no, I guess I was 26. I think it was 26. That I committed to is like, I wanted to live at home. I wanted to save as much money as I could because I knew I wanted to buy a place. Mm-hmm. And when the barn came up, it was perfect because I had like almost to the dime the right amount of money saved, saved up to put down for a down payment. So, but going back is like that my parents bankrolled me in the beginning because they let me do that. I didn't have to pay rent. I didn't have to pay lease and I didn't have to pay a mortgage. So I could just save everything. I would find uh, auctions online for fitness equipment. I would find Craigslist stuff. I would find eBay stuff and I would use all that to gather all my equipment and plus all the equipment I had growing up in, in my, the gym that my dad had built for us. So like the, you've got to look at everything from an unconventional perspective and because that's the only way you can succeed. You can't, you can't, you can't succeed right off the bat with a, with a big loan and mm-hmm. no place to be and no, you know, no clientele. Yeah. Um, I mean, I could, I could, like, for me to get to the barn and then get from the barn to here, it's like a whole other world, you know. And that's where it's like, to to think about my end goal and my vision for this gym and where I want this gym to be in five to ten years, it's a whole other world from where I'm at now. And that's why, like, for for me, I got to sit here and say, like, dude, I can't stop. I'm 33, like. I want to put the work in now so that by the time I'm 40, I can be like, okay, now I'm at, now I've achieved this level and now I want to perfect that level. And that's, that's it, you know? Okay. So, but at the the end of the day, it just comes back to everything's, dude, everything I've ever done financially has been unconventional. (coughs) Even buying this place was not a traditional way to get a loan. So would you say ultimately the number one thing that you would focus on if you were to, if you were to do this again, do it all over, you would plan out your finances in a more achievable manner. Is that, is that what you're trying to say? Or it just, just it just roll with the punches? No, that was good. I, I don't know. I, I think I think what I would do differently. Um I know what I would do differently. I don't think I would do anything differently financially except for. See, there's where like your shoulders are a little slow. I think the only thing I would do differently is that when I first started, I was making like really good cash for more than I had ever made in my life. And I wasn't paying bills. I was paying my parents electric, right? Like I wasn't paying a rental. I wasn't paying 1500 bucks a month. Mm-hmm. And that's where I, I should have been. I should have been saying, okay, I need to pretend I'm paying that 1500 bucks a month. That's what I should have done. But instead I was making, I was making really good money and I didn't have bills to pay cause I was living at home and I was, my gym was at home. So I was drinking a lot. Like, dude, I probably was spending Two three hundred bucks a week drinking. Yeah, dude, I had a serious fucking drinking problem. So like, that's what I would say. Like, I, where I should have changed, um, in in factoring my money, the money side, but also like my my and even up till now, 
I've always been hesitant to put content online for a few reasons. Like one, I've always, I've never really wanted people to know what I'm doing. But now I'm at the point where I'm like, I don't, people should know what I'm doing. Uh, but in the beginning, I didn't want to put content online and I didn't want to develop like an online business because I was almost self-conscious of what I knew. And I had been going to seminars and I had trained with Dr. B and, and I knew all this stuff and I read everything and I was training people and I, you know, still training people and experimenting on them and seeing what kind of results I could get from them. But at the end of the day, I was like, well, I don't feel 100% confident to put my content out there to try and sell something. And I think looking back, that's where I should have been like, no, screw it, dude. Like, there's dipshit putting stuff out there. Like, should have been more outright with it. Yeah, absolutely. Like, there's guys out there that are killing it online, and they're morons. They don't even train people. They have no idea what their experiences are. They have no idea how athletes are going to react to their, their programming, but people are fucking buying into their marketing. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think I, I should have developed an online presence way earlier and a marketing ide ideology way earlier. Like, I, I literally haven't developed a marketing scheme until last week, literally. Gotcha. Okay. <clears throat> so that's where I would change. <laughs> Even my marketing scheme, I developed bullshit half-assed plan right now. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I mean, that definitely would help. That definitely helps, you know, overall. As far as so so prior to this, you you had no entrepreneurial experience, right? No, I mean my dad owned a business for a little bit when I growing up. He did. Um, I think you know. As far as um, still a little slow with that punch. As as far as like. Business experience. My mom will tell this story all the time. Uh, mom, if you're listening, you're gonna love this. Um, when I was growing up, we were the first family that had dial-up internet. Um, dude, I used to I used to print up Playboy pictures, <laughs> and I would go on the bus and I would sell them for a dollar. And I was in like. I was in like fifth or sixth grade because like this is back in the internet was like you could get anything. There was no regular. This is like 1996. Like, That's insane. Yeah. I didn't even know that back then. Yeah. So like I would go downstairs at like one in the morning and I would go on and I and like these – dude, I know this is nuts. But I still remember this picture of like Anna Nicole Smith like loading slowly and I could see her, <laughs> I could see her chest. And like I heard my dad upstairs. I'm like, oh shit, what if my dad comes down and he sees me printing this up? But like he never came downstairs, and I pr I would print up these pictures as soon as they would get get on the screen, I would print them, and then I would sell them, you know, for a dollar, and uh, and then I started selling gum. I would buy packs of gum and I would sell them for twenty five cents a piece. So that was like when I realized like yeah, yeah I realized that I can, all over the place. Yeah, and and then I I was really into like yard sales and stuff. So my mom would have a yard sale like once a year, and I and I liked that. And I think that that always intrigued me that I was capable of doing that. So I I never like had that entrepreneurial like upbringing. My dad did own a business for about like fifteen years that he sold. Um, nice, Anne Marie. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I had never had. I had never had anything 
any traditional stuff. And I think at the end of the day, I don't. I, I'm sort of glad I didn't because I have approached everything with such like a loose structure. Like it's a little bit of a structure, but not really. And I think that makes it a little more dynamic to alternate like, or to to alter with my surroundings. You know what I want to do. Mm -hmm. So, no, I never really had it. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's probably one of the biggest threats that uh, I guess people, is that, especially for me, that I come into is I have no experience in entrepreneurship. You know, yeah. I've worked jobs, I've worked kitchen jobs. So, I mean, the way that would apply to running finances and stuff is, is kind of mind blowing. But at the end of the day, I feel like it, it's straightforward enough that you're going to catch on. Well, it, you've got to approach it the same way that you approach approach like training is that. It has to come back to understanding that there must be a system for things in place. And this is where like hiring Jen was like the best thing I ever did. Because, <laughs> well, like there, there's no system before that in place for anything I was doing. Like I had the system in my head, but like only I knew what it was. Like I knew that when, when people come in, they have the code. They, like, dude, this is how Mickey Mouse I was. I had a fucking Monopoly bin, and I would trust kids to put $10 in the Monopoly bin, and I would value it. Like, that's how fucking stupid I was. But I was making good money doing that. Yeah. But I had kids stealing from me. I had kids fucking not paying and all that stuff. But I still was making enough money. I just never caught it. And then, you know, Chris was like the first one that, I, that worked with me, and he was like, dude, you, we're not doing this shit anymore. Yeah, and Chris would just be like, dude, no, kids have to pay to me. I'm tracking all that. And then he left, and it's sort of like I'm not good at things like that. And that's where with Jen is that she's been good that there's a system. You walk in the door, you, you check in with her. She you know, teaches, tells you everything about the place. And you email me. You want to get in contact with me. She checks it. There's a system set. And so when it comes to running a business, there has to be a system in place for every little thing that you can come up with. And if there's not, well then you're gonna you're gonna eventually you're gonna be inefficient. There's not they're gonna you're gonna lose things. So So it's setting up just setting up the right people around you in order to help you. So it's like an athlete, so so I have an athletic trainer to make sure I'm healthy, I have a nutritionist to yeah, make sure yeah. I'm eating right, you know, I have a coach to make sure I'm training right. Yeah, and it, it would come down to everybody from you know, everybody needs to. Everybody also needs to understand like your vision and your goals too. Like, if your lawyer doesn't have an idea of what your long-term vision is, he might set up your company poorly, and that when you get to a certain point of growth, your your growth is is gonna be you know hurt. Because you're legally not set up to, to grow past a certain point. So it's like one of those things where you've got to make sure that everybody knows and everybody understands what your vision, goals, and all that is. Everybody from your accountant to your lawyer to your parents to their, anybody that you want to have work for you, like that needs to be clear so that they know going forward, like, okay, this is the real deal. and This is what I want to do. Or no, Hunter just wants to work. 40, 50 hours a week and make 40 grand a year working in a gym. I don't know. Like, and it, it'll be fun and, and not that stressful. Mm -hmm. So. Okay.
So switching gears again, um, so I trained with your athletes the past couple days, past two days, and I mean they've been great people. I see where the success comes from. But uh, so personally, from you, so what qualities do you look for in athletes? I mean, it's, it seems that you've surrounded yourself with a strength culture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You can't stress. Yeah. Uh, I don't look. The only thing I look for for my athletes is if they have money to fucking pay me. <laughs> no, I mean I'm not recruiting anybody. Like that's yeah, the thing. Yeah. Like I don't have anybody. I just wait for somebody to email me or to walk in the door. Um, but the ones that stay. You know, they have a work ethic. They have long-term goals. They have uh, relative intel intelligence to understand that, yeah, that you know, they need to follow a specific path to become a, an elite lifter or a thrower or whatever it might be or a football player. Um, nobody is really entitled or the entitled ones don't last. You know, it's like, it's just down to how hard do they want to work, how how well do they handle stress, how well can they adapt in certain situations, um, how well do they communicate, how well do they communicate, um, and, that, and that also goes with me too, is that how well do they communicate with me, and don't sink though, you're like hitting a split and then drop and like hit it and don't sink as much. So I, I think for my own athletes, I just want, dude, I just want people that want to train. I want people that want to be the best that they can possibly be. I want to train people who want to be champions and I want to train people who have the work ethic and have the, the communication capabilities to keep the environment positive. You know, and that's the biggest thing is like, it always comes back to the the environment and the setting of training, mm -hmm. and and that's the if you can provide that, then you'll be fine. You know, I think that's where a lot of a lot of guys that have like a business background fail when they come to businesses. Like I, I know a lot of guys that have business that have gyms that failed to run it from a business side because they suck at training people. They suck at being a coach. And it's different to coach somebody in comparison to training somebody. You know, like, there's a different relationship. Or, or it's different to coach somebody in comparison to running a business. Mm -hmm. Like, being a coach entails, like, an emotional side, a social side, an athletic side, and a family side. Running a business is all about numbers, you know. So it's like, and, and you could be a robot and run a business. Mm -hmm. As long as the numbers are lining up, but you can't be a robot and you know train people. You got to have a little bit of charisma. You've got to have a little bit of personality. Personality. You have to be able to relate to people of all walks of life, and you have to be open-minded. You can't be a bigoted piece of shit. Like you know, like that's like important aspects. Okay, so as far as along, uh, along lines of coaching, how can someone build their coaching knowledge? I know you said you trained with Dr. B, and that's yeah. where you might have gotten a lot of your, your influence from. Um, but, I mean, is there anything that you wish you had studied while you were in school? I know you were a religious studies major, but... No, I'm glad I didn't do any shit when I was in school, actually. Um, 
I think I take that I take that back. The only thing I wish I would have studied would have been like strict biomechanics. So like like some of the stuff like a physical like a physical therapist might go over would be like responsibility of joints. Um, what are the prime movers? That was good there. And like understanding what muscles are responsible for what actions and and what is internal and external rotation and in all the you know the hips and the shoulders mm -hmm. <coughs> flexion extension and like what's responsible for every little detail because I think that that's something I had I learned earlier I would have been I would have done a little bit better earlier on but I, I like. Most of the other stuff that they teach in school, like, I have no interest in. Uh, even the business stuff. Like, I, dude, I don't know why people go to school for business because I think the best way to learn is, is to read about businesses, talk to guys who own businesses. That's the most important thing. Talk to people who own businesses and then own a business. Um, but from, you know, from training, the training side, I, I don't know. I don't think I ever, I, you know, just learning that traditional biomechanic movement side. I wish I would have done that. Okay. Um, and so my last question here is directly correlated to training. Uh, so I've seen a lot of your athletes throughout practice take, you know, not safe throws. So they're not saving their throws or, you know, stepping out of the circle, um, as well as you measuring throws. And so I was wondering what the idea was behind those two aspects. So Fallon throws and then yeah. Measuring. So yeah, Fallon throws and then measuring at practices. Okay. Um, so a lot of the, as far as fouling a throw, you know, I typically, I don't want, I don't want my throwers just blowing out the front. I don't mind if they do like little foot fouls. If they like blow out the front in my head, I'm like, okay, well there's, you know, I know there's something wrong with that technically that we can improve upon. But in my mind, there's a lot of throws that in training that are fouls that you could save in a meet. Um, but I also want, Athletes to, especially throwers, obviously, because that's what we're talking about, to understand, like, on the finish, like, transferring forward, like, letting the letting the weight shift over the non-dominant side. So if you're a right-handed thrower, like, the weight is on your, your, your right leg when the left grounds at, like, 70-30 or 60-40. But then it, it has to shift over the non-dominant side, the left side, so that it's, like, 70 30 over the left side and 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 if you're fouling you get that feeling of how to chase the shot or chase the discus out into the sector and that's the whole thing that our technique is like working out rotating out being linear out into the sector so um as far as you know fouling that's that's part of the main issue just not backing off the finish okay. um I think that that's actually important too. I think it's important to learn how to like get out after one, um, and if and you'll see like, I mean, I told you this earlier. Like, some of our athletes, we will start doing safe throws as well, like mm -hmm. three safe throws, and then we come up with a ratio of safe to balls out, you know, and then try and try and close that ratio. Um, but measuring is just 
it's data. You know, like that's how I look at it. It's 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 it's, yeah. a, it's providing scientific data. So measuring how far they're throwing with a certain <laughs> implement is the same as knowing what weight is on the bar for a power snatch versus what weight's on the bar for a snatch pull versus what weight's on the bar for a full snatch. And if you can see the chart and where they're at with with different weights, then you can see where there 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 might be a technical issue or there might be a, a strength deficiency based off of that chart. So that's why I measured because it's, it's scientific feedback. It's giving you direct, you know, data that you need that I believe you need to become a better coach and to peak your athletes better. Because it that's the other thing too is I use it. I do use it to peak them. I use it. The feedback that I get from a light implement or, or a competitive implement or a heavy implement is the same data that I use to to set them up for their peaks. So if I wasn't measuring that, I would never really know. It would just be like I could still gauge it, but I wouldn't know for sure. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, but I think that's important to see. You know, where where's where's Rachel's three k or six pounder in comparison to her fourteen pound shot? Where's that? comparison and what are what is the bridge that we need to build to unite those two you know heavy real heavy implement really light implement what's the bridge we need to build so that she has she's technically sound and structurally sound enough that we can you know get those heavy and competitive movements to be similar to her light movements or you know maybe she, maybe she throws heavy shots well and to unite the lighter shots with the heavier implements so that's why we that's the main reason why. Gotcha. Because I know I read about it before um, as far as measuring it in practice. I know Ulf Timmerman had spoken about how whenever he was throwing, he, he would have a certain distance marked out in order yeah. to reach that with his just his leg strength. So he'd keep his, his arm strength exactly the same and just through tempo with leg use would hit certain distances through his practice. And he would track I think Timmerman did a lot of, of uh, um, low-level – Measuring, so he would also measure like. Let's let's just use it. Okay, on, on this day, I want to I want to make sure every throw is over 1950. You know, Krauser's been posting that on Instagram. I want to make sure that every throw is over 2050 or what. <coughs> My safe throw is 2080. You know, and and there are ways to to play around with that, but I, I think at the end of the day, just measuring your best throw and getting that feedback, on a consistent basis is important. Yeah, well, I mean, that wraps up. That's all the questions that I've drawn up for the podcast so far. All right, if you have anything else, let me know because we've only got two more reps of Anne Marie's jerks. <laughs> um, trying to think of oh, so another big for athletes was a lot of, uh, a lot of voodoo, voodoo flossing, a lot of smashing, a lot of rolling. So, how big. A part is recovery in, in an athlete's life, do you think? Because yeah. I've met a lot of coaches that say, you don't need to stretch, don't even worry about it. You get all your range of motion through your movements. And then I've seen coaches say, we're going to hit static stretches at the end of every single lift. So, I mean, what, what's your ideology on that? I think it's important. I don't know enough about it, uh, and I don't feel like I need to because I have John Giacalone, who's uh, the mobility doc. Right. So he's taught me pretty much everything I know. And I trust him 100% and I value his opinion 100%. So what he tells me um, and what he has seen in, in the testing that he's done on all of our throwers or all of our weightlifters and the consistent imbalances that he's found, 
he's developed a couple different mobility routines that we use. Um, and he's also taught our athletes, like, look, when this is happening, floss with this or, you know, tack and floss that and do this. And he helps tremendously. Um, I think it's extremely important. I think it's ignorant to sit there and say that mobility work or, or soft tissue work wouldn't help with recovery. Uh, there's plenty of silence, uh, science that shows that. And I think there's plenty of science that will show, you know, that's like one of my next goal here is that I want to get an ice bath here and I want to get a sauna. Because science shows that that shit works. So if we can get the recovery game in line with our supplement game and in line, then, you know, then we can start to really focus on like meditation and, and breathing rituals and getting everybody, every aspect can make you a little bit better. And the difference between the number one lifter, the number one thrower in the U.S. and the number two thrower is minimal, but that can close the gap. Mm-hmm. So that stuff's, that stuff's important. And that's, it blows me away when, you know, I mean, even I have, I have a wrestler that I train at the Air Force Academy right now, and, and I'll ask him if he can tack and floss his elbow because it hurts, and they don't have voodoo, voodoo floss. Like, you're a Division One, like, at a legit school, too. You don't have that. That's pathetic. Like, so I think that's, I think that recovery plays a huge role, and that's extremely important. So. I think it's, it's funny that you mentioned the, uh, the cold tub because I know Matthew Vince and I follow him. Uh, pretty closely he just made himself a, a cold, cold, cold tub yeah. so he'd taken a, an ice chest freezer okay. put it connected to the wall with a, a timer okay and it just runs on and off the clock i think three hour increments and it just stays at i think it stays about 35 degrees oh shit yeah and he just sits in that i should figure out how he did that yeah he just i think he picked it off craigslist 150 bucks that's good and we could use that he ran right over lowe's and it's an outlet adapter where it runs on a timer through bluetooth on your okay. phone okay yeah yeah yeah. That's a good idea. It runs a cold tub. I'll steal that from Hater. Yeah. But, I mean, that wraps or it hate. up. That's all the questions I got. All right. Thanks for ch- chiming in for the uh, the interview, for the business perspective, and for the training perspective. Until next time, peace. At this time, we want to give a big thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Dane's Platform. Remember to look out for our next episode and check out our sponsors, Earth Fed Muscle, The Acceleration Diet, and Holistic Encapsulations. Peace!